Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Well, 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 what do you know? Someone has left a comment on YouTube that really fits perfectly with everything I've been saying about Christianity and who really is the authority and everyone claims the Bible is the authority and who gets to tell who is right and who gets to tell who is right. It's just, I mean, I couldn't have asked for better timing. Someone on YouTube was like, oh, wait, I don't know. I don't really know who you are. And I don't know if I've listened to anything you've ever said, but I'm going to provide you a comment that fits perfectly with everything you've been talking about. So if you've been listening to us, then this is going to fit perfectly. If you haven't, well, you just need to go back and listen to everything I've done in the last three years. Okay. You need to get started today. All right. Okay, I, I, I'm joking, but w- welcome everyone. What am I doing? I need to give you an, uh, a proper greeting. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It is Thursday, September the 7th, 2023. It is currently 11.13 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, over the past, well, I, in some ways I've been doing it for years, But over the past week or so, maybe two weeks, I have really, really, really been emphasizing some major issues and problems I have within Christianity. And I just admit this, and I think every Christian should struggle with these questions, but nobody wants to ask these questions. And the minute I start asking questions, people kind of, they kind of get mad, they get defensive and they think, oh no, 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 he can't, he can't say these things. But we, we have to be willing to admit some of the problems that exist within Christianity, whether we like to or not, whether it makes us comfortable or not, whether it makes us uncomfortable, okay? No matter how it makes us feel, we need to be able to do this. So let me try to put this all together. And then I'm going to tell you what happened maybe less than 24 hours ago. It may be 48 hours ago. I don't know if I have a timestamp. If I do, I will give you the accurate time. But we started a series on dispensationalism. And in that series on dispensationalism, I did a little bit of church history, right? We kind of went back to the Reformation and we went from the Reformation to 1917 with the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, the 1917 edition, 1909, then there was the 1917 edition. We're utilizing the 1917 edition and the notes in that edition to really explore and test and and discuss dispensationalism. So I, I think that that historical historical perspective and overview was very important. We talked about uh, the history of English Bibles. We did, a, we did a lot of good church history there that I think was beneficial. And whenever I start talking about church history, especially if I go back to 1517 and I start with the Reformation, I always talk about what I refer to as the un- unintended consequences of the Reformation. Now, whenever I do this, people get very mad at me saying, oh, you're throwing out the Reformation. And and no, I'm just being honest that whatever the Reformation attempted to accomplish and for whatever good that arose from the Reformation, there was some unintended consequences that have had a very negative, negative impact on Christianity. And there is no way to deny it. Now, I've said many times that, look, I cannot speak 
you know, for what was going on in the heart of Luther, right? I, when Martin Luther, you know, I know the there's debate on this. Did he actually nail the 95 Theses to the door? Some say he did. Some say there's no actual historical record of that. Okay, we know he published his 95 Theses. Whenever he published those 95 Theses, you could get into, we could do, you know, you know, try to get into the motivations and the heart and the mind of Luther. But if we just take it at face value, he obviously had major issues with some of the teaching occurring in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And inevitably, whether, again, whether we want to admit this or not, he basically was saying, look, the church, you aren't the authority. You're not the final authority, even though the Catholic Church has this structure of magisterial authority, uh, apostolic succession, the Pope, they're the ones who can decree what, what is dogma, and then they can declare something to be anathema. They have the authority. Well, we always argue that what Luther intended to do was like, hey, guys, guys, you're no longer the authority. The rightful authority is the scripture, the scripture alone. And since the church doesn't stand above the scripture, the scriptures stand above the church. And that sounds so good. We, we, we preach that on October 31st and everyone says, amen. Well, unless your church is doing, you know, trunk or treat or fall festival or whatever other nonsense churches do. But if you, but if you, if you want to use it to actually study church history, you know, you should be studying the Reformation every year because there's always so many elements to it. But I, but some years I like to tell people of the unintended consequences and that sounds so good, right? Hey, the Bible above the church, the church not above the Bible. Amen. Praise God. Yes. Those Catholics were wrong. Yes, but I believe here's the unintended consequence, right? So over to the far right, you have the church, right? And I always do this at church. Uh, I always use the, the two the two sidewalls of the church and the pulpit. So I always say up to the far right, there's the church. In the middle is the pulpit, and I have my Bible sitting on top of the pulpit. And to the far left, right, we have self. Well, what we... what. We, what we always try to preach is that Luther attempted to say, no, 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 the authority doesn't belong to the church. It belongs to the Bible alone. But inadvertently, whether he intended this or not, and I believe it's unintended, it kind of skipped over the Bible and it landed into the laps of the individual to the people. And I know you're going to say, no, 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 the Bible is the final authority. Well, we say that, but really the final authority is how we understand it how we interpret it because everyone claims the Bible is their authority. And yet we don't agree on anything in church history. We don't agree on baptism. We don't agree on Lord's supper. We don't agree on the structure of the church. We don't even agree on salvation. We don't even agree on the definition of the word repentance. We, I mean, there we can go on and on and on. So what really inadvertently happens as every individual now becomes their own pope, their own magisterial authority, and in reality, they they interpret the Bible, and their interpretation is what becomes authoritative. You say, no, the scriptures are authoritative. No, the individual becomes authoritative, no matter how much we want to say. Now, I believe the Bible should be the authority, but the reality is we open it, we interpret it, and then we declare our own dogma. This is true. And anyone who disagrees, you're a heretic, you're a heretic, you're a heretic. How do I know? Because, well, I interpreted the Bible. And then to make matters even worse and to complicate matters even more, what happens? Well, we have this weird thing within the non-Catholic world, right? On one hand, the pastor is supposed to have the authority, right? He goes to seminary, Bible college, he gathers, gets all of this education. 
However, he stands to preach and who then can judge the preaching and tell and determine if it's right or if it's wrong? The layperson sitting in the pew who's never been to Bible college, never been to a, a, a you know, seminary, and maybe never even read any books on exegetical studies or hermeneutics or anything. And they, will, they can tell the pastor, you're wrong. You're not preaching the truth. I'm going to go somewhere else. So if the person sitting in the pew can judge the accuracy and the correctness of the teacher who went to Bible college and seminary, if you really think about it, there's no point in going to Bible college or seminary. Because a person without that education is really the ultimate judge on whether something is supposedly true or false. And we see this play out in churches all the time. That's why there's church splits. That's why people leave the church to go to another church. Because they make the determination the pastor is wrong. His preaching is wrong. And then they go somewhere else until where they determine that that preacher is telling the truth. Until they disagree with that preacher. You say, well, that's a very jaded way of looking at it, but it's the way it works in practice. I, I have gone, if I have spent a good portion of my life going to school, I went to Bible colleges. I went to Bible institutes. I went to seminaries. I, I, I have multiple degrees. I have degrees, have master, multiple master degrees in theological studies and biblical studies, I have multiple bachelor degrees in uh, theological studies and biblical and, and theology and in biblical studies. I've got degrees in religious education. I've gone to so many schools. Do you know what that means to anyone listening to me? It means absolutely. Absolutely nothing. You know what it means to any person who's ever walked in my church and sat in the pew? It means absolutely nothing. They don't care. Because at any point, I can open the Bible and go, this is the word of the Lord. And they can go, wrong, wrong, wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. That's it. Not listening to you anymore. Done. Okay. So, but, and guess what? Everyone would claim, what is the authority? The Bible. But here's the weird thing. The person telling me I'm wrong would claim that the Bible is the authority. I would be saying, no, the Bible is the authority, but somehow the same authority is leading us to conflicting opinions where we're both condemning the other person. Now, I, I constantly try to say this is how it plays out in real life. And people will say, I'm not so really sure because, you know, I really am submissive to my pastor. And I'm like, until you're not. OK, but but the point is, is I, I try to uh, try to explain this or describe. And I think some people think that I'm too hyperbolic, that it's too over the top, that it's, you know, too, that you're too negative, you're too jaded. And, and, and I won't deny that, that certain things have greatly impacted me uh, along those lines. But I also know how it plays out every day in real life. And this leads us to YouTube. I did a message. Oh boy, I did a message. Here we, here we are. I did a message on modalism, basically, versus Trinitarianism. And I played a clip from the editor of The Sword of the Lord. His, uh, I can't remember the name of his podcast. He has a podcast, a radio broadcast. Um, I make a difference. I, I can't remember uh, what it's called. Um, I, I, can, I, I got The Sword of the Lord papers here. I could go look through them. But I played a clip of one of his programs where he said he was giving a definition of the Trinity, when in re reality, he gave us a modalistic uh, uh, understanding of the Trinity. He gave us full-blown modalism, Sabellianism, which are ancient heresies in the Christian church. They teach that there's one God who manifests 
themselves in three different ways versus the Trinitarian idea. No, there's one God coexisting, co-eternal, three distinct persons, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are radically different approaches. Both cannot be right. So I just wanted to go, hey, when I tell you that most Christians, when they give you a definition of the Trinity, they really give you a modalistic understanding. I'm not making it up because here's someone who's clearly a Trinitarian, right? Clearly the editor of the Sword of the Lord is a Trinitarian, but he gives a definition that's full-blown modalism. Now, either he doesn't know what modalism is, he doesn't know what, you know, or modalism is also referred to as Sibelianism. He doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. Or, or he's just borrowing from the way it's been defined for him in the past. And I, I look, I'm the first to admit, whenever you start trying to explain the Trinity or illustrate it, you almost always slide over into some kind of heresy. So you really have to kind of take a different approach. So I, I thought it was a simple broadcast. It was supposed to be simple. I don't know. It was 30, 40 minutes. It was simple. No big deal. I moved on. But someone who I guess stumbled upon our message on YouTube well, they didn't move on until they left a message. And this message highlights all of those issues that I think are the unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation. Because now every individual is the Pope. Every individual is the magisterium. And every individual now can take a Bible and tell everyone else that they're wrong. Now, I, you say, well, how do we get back to the Bible being the authority? Well, I've been talking about that. We got to, I, I, if you listen, been to, listening to all the things I've been talking about in regards to dispensationalism and the danger of theological systems and how I've so emphasized trying to get back to just the Bible and, and laying aside presuppositions and never, and never allowing your past study to have any influence on your present study. I've talked, I've tried to talk about so many different things to try to help. It's never going to be perfect. But we have, but the first step is acknowledging the reality of this problem. But I want to read this comment. I want you, I want you to see how this comment is just another example of what I've been talking about. And then I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to do your own work to see what you find in the scriptures. I am not going to challenge you to go find a book on the Trinity, to go find a systematic theology that explains the Trinity. I'm going to give you some things to look for in the scriptures yourself. Now, here's the problem. This is where everything breaks down because I, I have done this a million times. So there'll be some big theological issue, some big theological controversy. And anyone who listens to me knows what I always say. Okay, guys, I need you to look all of the references for this. Look up all the references for this. Look up for all the, re look for this, look for this, break them down into categories. And I will give you all the steps. Guess what happens over and over again? No one will actually do the work. No one will actually do the study. And when I say no one, I'm not meaning that there's never at least three or four or five or six people. I'm talking as far as the majority, they usually don't participate in doing the actual work. But what I have found hilarious is many of the people who won't actually put in the hours to do the work are the very people who'll tell you you're wrong. It's got to be great that you, that you can just tell someone you're wrong. You know what they typically argue with me is they had run to an article or they went to a commentary, found what someone else said and said, you're wrong. And then they regurgitate what they took from someone's book. And it's like, well, I read the same book. 
So why don't you actually go do the study that I asked you to do and actually look up all the references of scripture and actually engage this in a meaningful conversation? But typically they don't. So in this particular case, all I can do is challenge you not to go read what your favorite Trinitarian said, but to do some of the scriptural work I'm going to give you to do so that you can see what you find in scripture. Don't take my word for it. Yes, I'm a Trinitarian, absolutely 100% committed to that doctrinal theological uh, position. But I I have tried my best when, if this person who, who, sent me this comment, they would have listened to our teaching on the Niagara Creed. When we got to the Trinity, if everyone remembers that teaching, I was like, okay, guys, what we're going to do here is the Niagara Creed is putting forth a Trinitarian concept. We're going to step back from the Creed and we're going to just see if we can build a Trinitarian theology from Scripture alone Does everyone remember that? I didn't borrow from a systematic theology. I didn't borrow from any creed. I didn't, I, we just tried to go through the Bible. Like, okay, we have to identify this. Okay. Then we have to identify this. Then we have to identify this. And then we're only left with a couple of options. Those options are, there are three gods. (laughs) Okay. That's a problem. Or, or there is one God, yet there's three persons and somehow they're co-equal and they're co-eternal. Now, that defies human logic, but it seems to be what we believe the biblical text seems to support. So we tried to do it from using it that way. And we didn't try to just proof text it. We tried to just look up verse after verse after verse after verse. So if anyone would have heard that, they would have known we spent hours doing that. I think we did that during uh, the pandemic. Uh, So, um, you know, but that's okay. That's okay. We're going to do something similar today. All right. So this was six hours ago. This is when the message was left. Six hours ago. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to unplug my iPad so that I can hold it up right here in front of the microphone so that you can hear my voice clearly. All right. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me do something here. Whenever I'm responding to a comment that may be somewhat antagonistic or disagrees with me, or I may feel demonstrates a lack of actually listening to me. Sometimes I'm a, uh, you know, let's just be honest. I'm a human being. I have, I have flesh and my natural fleshly tendency is to be very sarcastic, kind of snarky. I can be, I, I can kind of come in strong. Right? I can. And, and it may be, you know, you know, one of my strong points when I was in high school, I was on the debate team, went to the uh, state championship for the state of Texas. Uh, we lost. It, it's, yeah, I don't want to talk about that horrible thing because of what happened. Okay, but so I can, I can, I can slide over into fleshly debate mode, and that's not godly, and that's not fair. I know that. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I tried to, I tried to justify, well, look at how John the Baptist talked to people. Look at how Jesus talked to the Pharisees. And Jesus went into the temple with a whip. Okay. Well, when I become the God incarnate, then, you know, I could, I could possibly maybe be a little bit more, uh, you know, that way. But the reality is I'm fleshly. So I'm going to try to handle this in a respectful way, but I'm going to still be blunt and direct. Now, if I slide over into something that's not appropriate, then that's a sin, and I make no excuse for that. 
right? But I'm going to try my best because in some ways this, in some ways I'm frustrated by this, but on the other way, I'm so grateful for this because it literally proves everything we've been talking about. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It says, when 90% of good Christians define the Trinity in a modalist way, just perhaps the 10% are dead wrong? Perhaps the Athanasians are the actual heretics who define the Trinity wrong and in such a way as to exclude both Jesus and Paul from the faith. Quit following Catholic heretics and just read the Bible sometime. There you have it. See, the reason I don't believe what they believe is because I haven't read the Bible. You're right. You're right. Thank you so much for for just not knowing me, not knowing anything about me and judging me as if you know how many times I've read the Bible. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how many times I've read the Bible because then it becomes about me. But to say that I have not read the Bible is the one of the, or to somehow imply that my problem and the reason I'm a Trinitarian is because I'm following Catholic heretics and, uh, and I, and I just need to read my Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think, what do we do? What is it called? See, now I'm getting ready to get all sarcastic. We, we, we do something called Bible study exercise where I do everything in my power to have us study the Bible. And we spend hours. We spent 70 plus hours studying the book of Jeremiah. And we did that in three months. But you're right. I don't read my Bible. I, I, you're right. I never, I never read my Bible. Um, right. Someone just says, you must not study enough. Only like 100 hours in Jeremiah this summer, right? I know. I don't, I don't, I, I, I say I'm trying not to be sarcastic, but I just want to sh- tell the individual, all right? And I've got the name of the individual here, but I'm not going to give the name of the individual because that would just be wrong. But to the individual, here's an idea. Maybe uh, get to know someone before you tell them they need to read their Bible. And I know this is going to come as a shock. But 2,000 years of church history has demonstrated that people who read the Bible come to radically different conclusions, which is part of the whole problem in the first place. And it's why Catholicism said you shouldn't hand the, the Bible to the ordinary people because it will be spiritual anarchy. Well, that's exactly what happens. And this is a good example of it. You're telling me, read your Bible. Well, I would say, hey, you don't believe in the Trinity? Read your Bible. And then someone over there who, who believes in baptizing babies will tell me, read your Bible. And as a Baptist who doesn't baptize babies, read your Bible. And as someone who's an amillennialist will say, read your Bible. And someone who's a premillennialist will say, read your Bible. And someone who's a preterist will say, read your Bible. And someone who's not a preterist will say, read your Bible. Someone's a dispensationalist will say, read your Bible. Someone who's not a dispensationalist will say, read your Bible. Someone's a Calvinist will say, read your Bible. Someone's not a Calvinist will say, read your Bible. Everyone says, read your Bible. Everyone says, all you got to do is read the Bible and it's simple. Obviously, 2,000 years reading the Bible has not made anything clearer because there's more division and disagreement than ever. But thank you so very much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to tell me that I should just read my Bible because I had not thought about doing that. 
And uh, up to this point, all of these years of teaching the Bible, I now realize that my mistake was I haven't read it enough. Okay, now see, now I'm being sarcastic. But it's just the arrogance there. The arrogance. And to tell me that I'm following Catholic heretic, uh, heretics, that that's my problem? Guess he doesn't know that I... I guess he doesn't know my whole background with Catholicism. I guess he probably doesn't know anything about that as well. But that's okay. That's okay. You know, because, you know, it's, it's great that you can just hop on YouTube and just act like you know everything about me, but that's okay. All right. So here we go. So I should just read. So quit following Catholic heretics and just read the Bible sometime. Well, thank you. I'll try to read it today. I'll try to read it today. I'll, I've got all these Bibles around me. And I haven't read any of them, but I'll try to start reading it today. See? See what's happening? All right, here we go. The Bible clearly says that the Athanasian Creed is heresy. Oh, it does. The Bible tells us that the Athanasian Creed is heresy. So for everyone who out there, if you, if you study your church history, just whenever you get to the time period of Athanasius, just remember he was a heretic. All right. Athanasius was a heretic. That's that's going to come a shock to many people who've studied church history. But there you go. He was a heretic. But guess what? This person on YouTube who's posting the comment, he's not a heretic. He's declared Athanasius, one of the most significant figures in church history, to be a heretic. But this person on YouTube isn't. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. All right. Let, let, let's, here we go. Number one, Jesus said unmistakably that he and the father were the same person, not two different ones. John 10 and John 14 both say this. I want you to realize he just told us that the Bible dogmatically declares that Jesus and the father are the same person. They are the same person. So when Jesus says, I came to do the will of my father, what he meant to say is I came to do the will of myself. When he says, father, take this cup for me. What he really wanted to say is self, take this cup from me. <laughs> when he said, father, glorify me as the glory that I had with you before. He wanted to say self, glorify self. With the glory that I had with myself before I left myself. When the Bible says he sits at the right hand of the father, really, he sits at the right hand of himself. Okay. Yeah. So when it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. No, the father sent himself. Because they're the same person. Hey, but I need to read. My, oh, wait, wait. I think I was quoting lots of scriptures there. I, I, I probably, I probably couldn't have done that since I don't read my Bible. All right. Number two, in Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul calls the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the Spirit, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in you and the Spirit that dwells in you. The only way that works is that if all three are the same person, any normal, sane definition of person. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same person. Now, obviously, what he would argue, they are the same person. They manifest themselves in three different modes, but it's the same person. So the Son is really praying to himself. 
And the spirit is just a different manifestation of the one person. That's, that's the argument. Okay. If that's, if that's the argument, I know the argument very, very well. I know it. I know modalism, Sabalianism. I know the oneness Pentecostal movement very well. I know these, these ideas. I, I've, I've had to study them. So I understand your argument. Now, guess what? You could have presented those arguments without accusing me of not reading my Bible. You could have presented those arguments without accusing me of following Catholic heretics. Because if you listened to me when we did the Niagara Creed, you would have realized that I said what we need to do is build the doctrine of the Trinity using Scripture without any outside helps. And we spent hours doing that. But of course, you don't know that. You just make assumptions on YouTube because you. I guess you can. But you could have handled this in a much more godly, respectful manner. So instead of arguing about the Trinity or not the Trinity, maybe I just make a couple of suggestions. Don't judge people. Don't assume you know people. And maybe just send a nice comment going, hey, I respectfully disagree with you. And here are the reasons I reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Number one, because the Bible and your words specifically says Jesus and the Father are the same person. And number two, because Roman, uh, because in Romans chapter eight, nine through 11, Paul calls the spirit this. And, and so Therefore, this only works if you use a, a normal, sane definition of person. And you could have just articulated it. And I would have been, okay, thank you. I don't necessarily agree with your interpretation, but I'm familiar with your interpretation. But I reject modalism and Sabalianism. Thank you very much for listening. There's probably some good modalist and Sabalianism teachers out there. And hopefully you can find the ones that will best suit your needs. And I probably would have just left it at that. Because I understand arguing doctrine and theology with people is about as useless as banging my head into a brick wall. Because really, it rarely gets anywhere because everyone thinks they're right and everyone thinks that they are the authority and that everyone else is a heretic and everyone else is wrong. So I do appreciate you listening and I do appreciate taking the time, but you could approach it in a much more, I don't know, like, you know, like a respectful way. You don't have to like me. But you don't know anything about me. So what should we do here, ladies and gentlemen? Well, first, thank you, because he, he, this person demonstrated all the point that I've been making. But here's what I would challenge you to do. Here's what I want you to, uh, to do. Now, the first, I'm just going to do it for you. But if anyone who reads the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to identify three very significant characters or figures in the Bible, however you would like to describe them. You're going to clearly see God the Father, right? You're going to see God the Father, or we could just say God, whether it's using the Hebrew word Elohim or Jehovah or, or uh, Yahweh. And I know there's all the de debate on, do we say Jehovah? Do we say Yahweh? Like, okay, we know we can get all the issue because they didn't write the full name of God out. Okay, we, we understand all of the issues with that. Okay, but we have God. Everyone knows that. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God. God is mentioned over and over and over and over and over. In fact, if you would like to do this, look up how many times God, capital G, or Lord, capital L-O-R-D, uh, how many times those, those words, terms are used. And then you can go through, you can check each reference if you want. It's going to take you a long time just to make sure that that's a reference to God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of man, the, the sovereign God who rules and reigns over everything. 
and you're going to find it's so many times. So there's no question there is a God. I mean, the Bible starts off with that assumption. It concludes with that assumption and it goes throughout the Bible. In fact, the Bible is a story of God, right? It's a story of God and, and it's about God. So there's no question to get there. You obviously are going to see this person named Jesus, and he is mentioned a lot. Now, even if he's not named specifically, we have uh, uh, four gospels that have him speaking over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? So we have Jesus. And then you have the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, there is no question you can identify these three. They're all, it's throughout the entire Bible, right? Even when Jesus is not, has not yet been incarnated, has not been born of the Virgin, he is, we believe that there are prophecies pointing towards him. So we have God, we have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. Those three are in the Bible. No one will dispute that. Everyone will agree with that. Modalists, Sabellianists, Oneness Pentecostals, uh, Trinitarians, everyone agrees. Now, what you need to do then is take, listen, this is very important. Take those three and then I need you to go through your Bible. Now, this I'm not going to do for you, but go through your Bible and see how all three are clearly described. Now, the first one doesn't take you very long. Clearly, God is described as being God, okay? In the beginning, God, okay? He is referred to as God. So the first one, there's no question. Now, you'll notice, though, now this is important. You would want to gather the basic biblical information on his attributes. So you will notice in the Bible that there's things like he is eternal. He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, present everywhere at all times, right? So you, you, he is holy, right? We can go on and on and on and on. You can, you can gather some basic attributes of him. So you know that God, that God is referred to as God, and you know that these are some of his basic attributes, you want it right down and, and you go through the Bible. Don't go get a book on the attributes of God. No, 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 no. You go through the Bible and find the attributes of God. Showing his omnipotence, showing his omniscience, showing him being omnipresent, showing uh, that. And you can find a lot of some of the Psalms are very good at this. There's plenty of places. Obviously, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Clearly, that shows his omnipotence, right? And so... Get those attributes. Now that leaves you two other individuals, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now what I would want you to do is go through the, all the references to Jesus and see, does he, is he given the same attributes as the Father? Is there enough there to say, no, Jesus is God. Is Jesus God? And then, and then when you can start establishing, wait, he can't, he's got to be more than just a man because he forgives sins. Well, only God can forgive sins. Okay. He, he on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Uh, about, about him. And then you do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. So I think immediately what you're going to realize is that there's God, there's this, there's Jesus and there's the Holy Spirit. And all three seem to have the attributes of deity. Oh, well, wait a minute. That could mean that there's three gods. Wait a minute, but the Bible declares the Lord thy God is one, that there's only one God. It's a monotheistic system. It's not a polytheistic system. All right, so wait a minute. If we have three individuals all bearing the attributes of God, 
huh, but there's only one God, we got a problem. So now we have to come up with a solution. And you see where you can go with this. You've got two solutions. Solution number one, well, there's only one God, one person God, but he shows up in different ways. Sometimes he shows up as God the Father. Sometimes he shows up as the Son. Sometimes he shows up as the Spirit, right? So so sometimes he shows up in different modes, Right? Different ways, different forms. That's modalism and Sabellianism. The problem is many looked to the scriptures and they said, hmm, I don't think this works. Because not only does the Bible say there's one God, not only do these three characters all have attributes of deity, something interesting take place. It clearly identifies and shows them as being separate different, distinct. Clearly, this seems to be the case, right? For example, I'll just give you one quick example. And I'm very familiar with this because when we spent four years going verse by verse through the gospel of John, I made this a constant because I think it was at that time that we had someone, someone was visiting the church who was a one as Pentecostal and started arguing with me in the middle of one of my sermons, just interrupted my sermon and started arguing with me. And so throughout the gospel of John, I wanted people to see how the three are distinct. So I I kept telling them in the gospel of John, look for when Jesus clearly references himself as being separate and distinct from the father, right? So, um, but we don't even have to get to the gospel of John. Because we see this very early on. Let me see here if I can find it. Um, See if I can see this. Hang on. Okay, here we go. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is being baptized. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Where is Jesus? He's in the water. All right. And lo, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. Jesus is in the water. The spirit is descending. That seems to show distinction. Oh, and wait. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now there's God speaking, speaking of Jesus as separate. This is my beloved son. He doesn't say, hey, everyone, this is me. (laughs) Hey, This is me in whom I am well pleased. He's like, this is my son showing a distinction. It's not one person going, oh, wait, so wait, Jesus is in the water. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm in the water, but I'm going to now throw myself up here as the spirit. Wait, 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 wait. Now I'm going to put myself up there in heaven. No, it's three distinct, three distinct. There's no way to, if you can't see that they're distinct right there, I don't know what to tell you. Unless you believe that God was just deceiving everyone with some magic trick. He was throwing his voice and his image. No, Jesus is in the water. The spirit is descending and God speaks three distinct. However, when you read about those three distinct characters, guess what? They all have the attributes of deity and are all referenced as deity. When someone falls at the feet of Jesus to worship, he doesn't say, no, 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 don't do that. Because he is God incarnate. All right, we see a little bit of this in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. That almost means literally face to face with God and was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. So he's with God, but he is God. How is that possible? Because it's one God, three distinct persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. All right. Now, I would challenge you then. This is what my challenge would be. Now, you should go. I would say, uh, this is what my ultimate challenge is. Go from Matthew to Revelation. Now, I've already told you, identify the three, get the attributes of God the Father. All right, so identify the three. That's easy. The God, God, the Son, or God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Make sure you uh, look at all three to find the attributes as given to them in Scripture. All three has attributes of deity. You should be able to determine that. You don't need me. And then here's the thing. I want you to go from Matthew to Revelation and look at all the verses that show them as being distinct. Just start in Matthew. Go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Go through the entire Bible and see how many times it seems to speak of them as being distinct. Now, is it being distinct modes or is it seemingly that there's a distinction in persons, three distinct persons who are somehow co-equal and co-eternal? Now, I'm just going to go through some of these quickly. I'm doing some of these from memory uh, because it's been a long time since I went verse by verse through the Gospel of John. But let's just look at a couple of here, right? Uh, let's go. I'm just going to go. I'm skimming as fast as I can, but I want you to do this through the entire New Testament. Now, the, most people won't do the work because if they will actually sit down with a notebook and do the work. Okay, here's God. Here's his attributes. Here's the Son. Or here's God, the Father, God, the, or God, the Father, the, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, because I don't want to add a presupposition in there. All three of those are identified. Then you go through, here's the attributes of God. Jesus seems to have the same attributes and the Spirit seems to have the same attributes. Hmm. That seemed to see that they're three divine. Okay, well, I don't, I don't think there can be three gods because the Bible says there's only one God. All right. Now, are, do they show them as being separate? Well, here we go. John chapter 2 verse 16. Jesus, right? He makes it at verse 15. Here's Jesus, right? He made a scourge of small cords, drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the table. And he said unto them, take these things hence, make, make not my father's house, a house of merchandise. Why didn't he say, don't make my house? No, he, he's showing himself distinct from the father. That's not, I'm not, you're going to say, well, that's weak. Well, I'm not saying it's all. You got to take everything that's in the Bible. Well, we know the next one for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever shall believe in him should not perish by everlasting life. There's the father, God giving the son. Look for God sent, not his son into the world. God sent his son. That is distinct. It doesn't say God sent himself. He sent his son. However, the son has the attributes of deity, yet they are separate. This is the, this is the reason the Trinitarian idea, as much as it defies human logic, it's the only thing that works or the biblical text becomes so convoluted. Either you have to deny the Trinity completely and deny the deity of Christ or deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, or you become some kind of polytheist, polytheistic, or you end up with all of these problems. The Trinity is the one where we can maintain one God, three distinct persons, but yet they're co-equal and co-eternal. Yet we see the distinct distinctiveness in each one. The Father is sending the Son. I don't know how much clearer it can be right there. 
for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent, right? John chapter 4, verse 21. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You're going to worship the Father. He doesn't say you're going to worship me. You're going to worship the Father. Ye worship, uh, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is referencing, speaking as if he is distinct. This this happens over and over and over again. All right. Um, let's see. Where else do we want to go? Okay. Look at uh, John 4, 34. Jesus saith unto him, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus was sent to do the will of the one who sent him. Who sent him? The Father. God the Father sent the Son. One God, clearly three distinct persons. I don't know how much clear it could be. Uh, John, and, and look, I've heard one is Pentecostals trying to explain all of these away, and it turns into some weirdness. But okay, I think, you know, if you want to talk about what makes sense, John 5, let's go to verse 19. John 5, 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do for what, th- what things soever he doeth, those also doeth the son likewise. That's clearly distinct. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. There is a distinctness for the father loveth the son and showeth him all things that, that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. I mean, normal English reading would be like, oh, they're, these are distinct. These are absolutely distinct. In fact, because the Bible seems to so emphasize this distinction between the Son and the Father has led many to call into question the deity of Jesus Christ and say he's not truly God. And then he says, uh, for the Father, now look at this, he makes a clear distinction here. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That's clearly they can't be the same person if the, they say, hey, the father's not going to do it. The son is. There's a distinction there. Um, for all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that honoreth not the son, honoreth not the father, which hath sent him. There's the idea. He sent me. He sent me. He was sent. Now, you could we could continue reading on and on and on. This goes on forever. And then we could go to John chapter 6, verse 27. We, we spent four years, draw, I kept over and over just hammering this fact over and over and over. See how distinct they are? See the distinction? See the distinction? And, and, and I kept going, one God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, over and over and over. Here we go. Um, it says here, uh, John chapter 6, uh, 
We'll go verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but he that, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son, the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. The Father sent the Son. The Father has sealed the Son. The Father has given the right to judge to the Son. I mean, over and over, there's this distinction. All right? Um, I oh, there's, there's so much more I could read here in John 6, 27. How about uh, John 6, 37? All right, John 6, 37. All that the Father hath given me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Right? For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Hey, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of send me. That shows a distinction. I mean, it's all, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. All right. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm skipping verse after verse after verse. Everyone do this for yourself. Do not take my words for it. Do not take my words for it. All right. John chapter eight, John chapter eight. Now look at this one. This, this argument here, I think is so important. All right. John chapter eight, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, thou bearest record of thyself. That record is not true. Hey, if you're going to, if you're going to make a claim of yourself, and you bear just the record by yourself, it's not true because something needs to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So, hey, this is not going to work. You you can claim anything you want about yourself, Jesus, but it's not true. There's got to be witnesses. So then what does Jesus say? Jesus answered and said unto them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true for I know whence I came and whether I go, but you cannot tell whence I come and whether I go. You judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. Wait, wait, Jesus is not alone? Wait, I thought he was only one person. I'm not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. He now just said, hey, they said, hey, you can't just be the, you can't just bear testimony of yourself. And Jesus said, but I'm not alone. It's me and the Father. He just made them separate. Why would he use that argument against the Pharisees if they're not separate? And he says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself and the father sent me that beareth witness. He just says, hey, you require two witnesses. There are two, me and the father. They have to be distinct or that whole argument is mute. Distinct in persons, one God. Then uh, they said unto him, where is thy father? Uh, Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. For if you had known me, you should have known my father also. He speaks of them being separate. We can go on and on and on. Jesus prays to the father. He's not praying to himself. I want you to do the rest for yourself. Now, I know, I know that's probably shocking because I just spent a lot of time reading the Bible because it's something I don't know. Do and just realize I didn't go look up any Catholic heretic as you called them. I, I just went straight to scripture. So here's what I want everyone to do. All right. Someone on YouTube has presented a classic modalist argument. All right. 
And he quotes John chapter 10. It's there. And I want you to read John chapter 10. Here's what I want you to do. All right. So here's my steps. You ready? And you can write this on paper. First, identify the three main characters, God, Jesus, and the Spirit. You can find a script. You can find a couple of scriptures that reference God, a couple of scriptures that reference Jesus, and a couple of scriptures that reference the Spirit. Just identify the three. And you can, you can do that. You say, well, I already know that. Don't take my word for it. Don't, don't even rely on your past presuppositions. Find us, find about five scriptures that refer to God as God, that refer to Jesus and refer to the spirit. Five each. That's 15 total. All right. Now, once you've done that, start gathering scriptures that give us the attributes of the father, his eternality, his holiness, his omniscience, his omnipresence, on and on and on and on. His immutability, on and on and on. All of these very important attributes. Get probably two or three scriptures for each one, right? Then do the same for Jesus. Find the scriptures that would give the uh, attributes of Jesus. Do, do those attributes lead you to declare Jesus is not just a man. He is God incarnate. Then find verses that seem to speak of the spirit as having the same attributes as God. Well, Holy, and there, there's one attribute. Well, if he indwells all people or indwells all believers, he's got to be more present more than one place at a time. That, that shows him being omnipresent. All right, then we can go on and on and on and we can talk about other. Uh, uh, was he involved in creation? If he was involved in creation, that would show his omnipotence, right? We can go on and on and on. Then I want you to go through Matthew to Revelation and find all the times that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are spoken of as being separate. Yet the Bible says that there is one God. Now, everyone will go to the verse where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Everyone speaks of that. You can look at that for yourself and see if you can come to a good conclusion about that. I think I don't think it's as, as complicated as everyone makes it out to be, but you can, you can look at it and see. You can see what he's trying to say here, right? You you can see. I I I know the scripture John ten thirty one. Uh, Mormons use it. Jehovah's Witnesses use it. Um, lots of people use it. Um, and you can you can go look and see what you can you can come up with. One in what way? One in person. One in purpose. One in person. One in action. What, what, what does it mean? Now, according to the, the person on YouTube, it literally says one in person. One in person. That, that, that's what the claim is. You look for it yourself. That's John 10, 31. Look at it. But, but before you get there, start in John 1 and look at all the ways the Father and Son are clearly identified as being separate. And then you put all of that biblical data. Don't go to a systematic theology. Don't go to Grudem. Don't go to Hodge. Don't go to anybody. Don't go to go. Don't go buy a book on the Trinity. Don't. Just look at that biblical data and go. Hmm, what do we do with this? We either end up with three gods. We know we can't do that. The Bible's definitive that there's only one God. So that doesn't work. Okay. Well, can it be three different one person in three different modes? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus' whole argument with the Pharisees is you require two, uh, two, at least two witnesses. Well, there's two, me and the Father. All right, that, that clearly there has to be two. All right, well, then how can there be two yet one God? One God, three distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal. Yet there's only one God. You say that makes absolutely no sense. I completely agree with you. 
but since when do you expect the God of all creation to fit perfectly inside our little brains? All we can do is try to look at the biblical data and come up and say, this is what the Bible seems to declare. I can't understand it, but this is what it seems to declare. Now, this is not going to change the mind of, of the person who, who, who posted the comment, and I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm not trying to change. I'm trying to take their challenge and present it to everyone listening going, all right, guys, now go to work. You go to work. There you have it. There we go. And we read a lot of scripture. Did you did you notice that? I know it's kind of. Yeah, a little bit of sarcasm. I'm trying not to be sarcastic. Forgive me if I if I was. I know I was, so forgive me. I'm not saying that that's necessarily called for, but I just do not like the arrogance of being accused of not reading my Bible. It's just ridiculous because I, I've, I've spent my entire adult life spending hour after hour after hour going verse by verse by verse by verse by verse through book after book after book after book of the Bible. I mean... Again, we literally just concluded over 70 hours of teaching in the book of Jeremiah. We, and we spent 70 hours in the book of Jeremiah in three months. It's just ridiculous. Oh, it's just ridiculous. So, and, and, and how about some of the Bible study methods where I'm, t- I'm telling you to read an entire book like five times? Yeah. So, all right. There you have it. I, I, there's so much more I could say. Other than this, I want you to to feel the tension of the reality that no matter what someone claims, they always claim that they have the Bible on their side and everyone else is wrong. That should be a, a, a constant bother to you that how can that be possible? All right. News. If at yahoo.com. That's news, if at yahoo.com, or feel free <laughs> to leave your comments on YouTube. I do try to check them. I do try to check them. It's not our primary place of distribution. It's not our a major place. Our numbers there are never that great. But uh, if you use YouTube, hey, we, we appreciate the download and we, we appreciate the streams. We do. We do appreciate it. Um, however you may listen, we appreciate it. Um, every download, every stream, and we do appreciate your support. Uh, positive comments. Those are always good. Thumbs up. Positive reviews on the Apple podcasting app is always a good one. Or go to theologycentral.net. You can leave a review there. We greatly appreciate that. And of course, if you ever want to support us in any other way, we greatly appreciate that as well. And for those who do support us uh, financially, thank you so very much. We have certain individuals who do, and we greatly appreciate that because they help uh, keep this whole thing going. And we are grateful. All right. Thank you. Everyone have a great day. God bless.